Good morning. I'm Bill Curley. Welcome to another edition of Ordinary Life live stream. <clears throat> I'm glad you're here. Ordinary Life is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church. And before we get into today's topic, which we have a lot to cover, what do we need to announce? You want me to announce an offering? <laughs> so that would be helpful. We usually pass an offering plate in Ordinary Life. And in the absence of people, we can't pass the plate. But we do have an opportunity to donate online, if you wish. You can go to our website, OrdinaryLife.org, click the Donate button. It'll take you to a site at St. Paul's. And in the memo, just put Ordinary Life if you wish to donate money, which will go to nonprofits working to serve the uh, underserved and poor in Houston. So thanks for your contribution if you and choose to make thank one. everybody who participated in the online yeah. auction. Yeah. A couple weeks ago, we completed an online art auction, which raised about $3,000 to go towards Faye Esperanza, Black Lives Matter Houston, Texas, and Project Curate, who are all working in various ways with rent relief, food scarcity, and just really working with people who are lacking right now during the global pandemic of COVID-19. And during this time of the pandemic and during our very troubled racial upset time, um, we have needs here at the EAC. Uh, you can come if you live in Houston and bring um, tins of Vienna sausage, other things that are easy to open, peanut butter things, and drop them off and it will be greatly appreciated. And if you have a pastoral need or know someone who does, let me know or let the church know. Call 713-528-0527 and uh, I promise you that your call will be responded to. Um, we're glad to be here and to be doing this and I will say that, oops, no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you, you are, are welcome here. Welcome here. I love this bowl. Yeah. You have a collection. I do. Oh, by the way, you didn't comment on my shirt. Mm. I love your shirt. Can you see my shirt? Make America intelligent again. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm going to have a chance before Holly speaks today to do something that I love to do, which is to make a contribution to religious literacy. Mm -hmm. And I have always been convinced the importance of that. And reading that book that I've mentioned a number of times in here, The Book of Joy, which is a series of recorded interviews between Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama, their joint conviction is that what we need in this world is education of religious and spiritual, not the same, type that emphasizes the very thing that we're beginning to talk about today. People need to be educated yeah. about wh what you're going to talk about, which is um, inner being. Well, I'll tell you a story about that later. We have a chance. Um, <laughs> you know, before the coronavirus derailed us, um, we were living with this mythic notion that we were getting better in every way, that the economy is growing and job uh, joblessness was going down and everything was getting bigger and better. And um, I had been talking with you about what I label uh, embracing 
the evolution of right religion. That's a phrase that I coin. And most scholars refer to a period of time that's called the first actual age. This is a term that was coined by Carl Jaspers, philosopher, historian, and it is about that period of time, about 700 BC, um, give or take a couple hundred years in there, where all over the world, in different places where people did not have a way to communicate with each other, the same spiritual consciousness arose. Um, if you want to know, <clears throat> I said that in about 500 words, if you want to know a more complete uh, history of this actual age and the things that happened during that time, you could not do uh, yourself a better favor than reading Karen Armstrong's 12 Steps to a Compassionate Life. She has the history of the actual age in there written in a way that's really easy to understand. Uh, but during this time, uh, Confucius came on the scene. Um, the uh, Upanishads were produced in India, as was Buddha, Zarathustra taught. In Palestine, the uh, Hebrew prophets, um, Elijah, Hosea, Amos, these people rose up, and they all had the same message. They, they, they all saw that the way people were living at that time was not working. We could say that, too. Yeah. Right now. Yeah. Front page of the New York Times oh, today yeah. that you just showed me. Mm -hmm. So you remember one of the things that Ilya Delio taught us was that one of the, one of the signs of uh, evolution is this amazing entanglement, how things that are apparently not connected are in fact connected. And so you have coming up during this time all over the, the world this evolution of right religion. And um, I'm calling it right religion because these people came to the notion that there was a right way to live, uh, a morally right way to live. And um, they, they all languaged it a little bit differently, but what they came up with during this period of time is what we know as the golden rule. It occurred to me while I was working on this talk that over the years, I have seen efforts by fundamental Christians to have installed in various formats, in various public places, a listing of the Ten Commandments. I have never seen uh, anybody advocate to putting this in public places. Treat others as you would like others to treat you. If you go to your search engine on Google, if that's the one you use, and look for the golden rule, you'll find about 15 different ways that this same set of words is put forward by various religious and uh, teachers along the way. So today, uh, Holly Hudley and I are introducing a new series in Ordinary Life, and we're calling it Interbeing, how Jesus and Buddha can guide us through this pandemic. I'm going to talk about Jesus and Buddha for a few minutes. Holly's going to enlighten us about interbeing, and then we'll find a way to uh, wrap this up. Jesus and Buddha are 
probably the two most remarkable religious figures in um, human history. Now, I want to be very, very clear that Jesus was not part of the first axial age. However, he is a continuation of the Jewish prophetic movement, the Hebrew prophetic movement that began during the actual age. Um, so that's why we're putting them together. Almost 500 years separate Jesus and Buddha. Uh, Buddha was born around 480 in uh, India. Jesus was born around 4 BC in Judea. And because of forensic archaeology, now what do I mean by that? Archaeologists have been able to exhume some um, bones from the period and place where Jesus was born and lived and taking these two male specimens and use, doing DNA work on them, these forensic archaeologists have been able to put together what they think Jesus probably looked like. And this is what they have come up with. Now, we don't have any depictions of, I mean, a lot of statues of Buddha, but nothing like this. We do have a statue from uh, the first century. This is the first the Buddhist scholars say a uh, statue that we have of Buddha was, comes from around the first century um, B.C. Now, if Jesus and Buddha today met and they went out for a drink, I hypothesize that Buddha would order a beer. <laughs> Jesus, some wine. No, no, he would order water. Oh. And then turn, turn it, it into, into wine. wine. That's right. <laughs> But they would not recognize what their followers have done to the movements that they started. Uh, that being said, these two men have a lot of things in common. And I want to talk about the parallels of Jesus and Buddha for just a moment. At the heart of their teaching, both of them taught the love of enemy, and the primacy of compassion. And God, do we need that today. We'll have more to say about that. They both taught, they both had life-altering changes around the age of 30. Now, from what we know about what Jesus scholarship has done and what we know about developmental psychology, we know that these life-altering changes that occurred for these men around the age of 30 probably started when they were in early or late adolescence. Um, both of them, both Jesus and Buddha, began renewal movements in their inherited religion. For Buddha, that would have been Hinduism, and for Jesus, that would have been Judaism. Neither of them had a desire to start a new religion. They both wanted to do something that was going to provide renewed energy for the religion that they were already part of. Both of them, after their deaths, had religious traditions that grew up around them. Again, they wouldn't recognize those religious traditions. Uh, it was said of Jesus after he had died that he was born of a virgin. It was said of Buddha after he died that when he was a child, everywhere he walked, flowers sprung up where his feet had been. There are uh, discrepancies in, in the history of that story. Some people say it was when he was a child. 
who uh, was born effortlessly from his mother's side. And some people say it was after his enlightenment under the Bodha tree that those things uh, happened. Both of these men were wisdom teachers. They sought to undermine the current worldview of the culture in which they lived. And um, they both spoke of what they were doing as a way to follow, a path to walk. And what Buddha and Jesus say about this parable, about this path, is both remarkably similar. First, the characteristics of the way for both Buddha and Jesus provide a new way of seeing. Teachings about seeing, light, sight are throughout the Jesus narratives, as are instances where he is said to have restored the sight of the blind. And I encourage you to read those stories as parables. To take them literally is not to take them seriously. Jesus' parables are all intended about getting people to see things differently. The word Buddha means the enlightened one. To be enlightened means to see differently. And both Jesus and Buddha sought to bring a perceptual shift to the people who listened and responded to their teachings. They both emphasized the importance of transformation. Transformation is different from simple change. Um, for Buddha, this transformation was from a way of life that caused suffering to a way of life that promised liberation. And what Buddha taught was that craving or grasping or its opposite, trying to get rid of something, craving and aversion, two sides of the same coin, these were the things that caused people to suffer. So that when you let go of these things, suffering would cease. Further, Buddha laid out a really precise way, which we're gonna use as a guide going forward, called the eight-way path, eight-fold path, about if you follow these steps, then you are on the path for transformation. Now, Jesus did not lay down an eightfold path. Um, he did lay down, uh, or his followers did, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. He did lay down what I call the, his transformative initiatives, where he says, you have heard it said in the past, but I say to you. And those things put together are very comparable to the eightfold path that Buddha did. And the third thing that they have in common is that the ethical fruit of this transformation is that people become compassionate beings, that they love one another, that we love one another, that we include one another. So in their wisdom teachings, I see no difference between Jesus and Buddha. And we'll be holding these up as we go along. As a matter of fact, <clears throat> and I mentioned this in a preview that went out, if you go onto Amazon and type in Jesus and Buddha, you will be taken to a list of books that compare these two religious figures. And many of these books are by people that you know or you've heard about, heard me talk about. Uh, Richard Rohr and Jim Finley have put together a wonderful set of CDs called Jesus and Buddha. I bet I've listened to those CDs uh, at least six, eight, ten times, and every time I do, I learned something different. Marcus Borg has a book 
on Jesus and Buddha. Thich Nhat Hanh, whom Holly's going to talk at length about, has a book on Jesus and Buddha. Uh, so the, the resources are out there if you want to know. There is, however, one major, major difference between these two guys. Know what it is? Oh, you do, because well, you, you read my stuff before we did this. Jesus has an uh, emphasis on social justice and political justice. But the Eightfold Path provides a way to participate in social change and social justice. And as you will say, um, this criticism that has been leveled against Buddhism got directly addressed by Thich Nhat Hanh, and uh, there is a movement in Buddhism now called Engaged Buddhism. Mm -hmm. um, I mentioned also in the preview, I take um, the three leading Buddhist journals, and I read them, the Lion Drawer, uh, Buddha Dharma, and, and uh, uh, another one. And um, they all the magazines now are talking about uh, the journals are talking about the importance of socially engaged Buddhism, mm -hmm. and the importance of social justice, and and that. So we do have that emphasis. Um, there is a story that grew up about Buddha that um, he died of food poisoning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He didn't want the cook reputation to be ruined by being the one who served Buddha the last meal so he told his uh, people who were supporting never to tell that that's a myth that didn't happen that way he probably died of old age he died in his 80s mm -hmm. and um, Jesus died executed as a criminal for a crime of sedition by the Roman government when he was um, in in his 30 um, John Dominic Crossan, who is probably the leading authority on Jesus, living in our world right now, says that uh, Jesus' passion for social justice grew out of his own personal experience. Mm -hmm. He was born in poverty. He was born without a father. Big emphasis on forgiveness and the need to be included mm -hmm. grew out of that. There's a considerable amount of scholarship about that. Um, there's some some theory, theories about where Jesus got all his material that he taught. Now, if you're a fundamentalist, it just came down from the sky and out his mouth like that. When I was in seminary, um, there were theories that were put forward that in Jesus' missing years, he went to India. That didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, certainly by the time Jesus was living, teachings from India had made it to the Mediterranean world, but probably in cities like Alexandria, and m maybe he could have gotten influenced by that. I don't believe that either. I don't see that there's any need to have cultural appropriation, uh, appropriation of his material from Buddha. These two geniuses both diagnose the human condition the same way. Mm -hmm. And that was that people were not seeing the need for compassion, justice, and inclusion. And so they built their religions about that. 
I'm not claiming either that uh, some, some people will tell you that Buddhism is not a religion. Mm -hmm. um, the encyclopedia would hold it differently. I have Buddhist friends. I've had Buddhist teachers, and they see Buddhism as a way of life. Well, so is Christianity supposed to be. Um, I, I think the religions are very, very different. They're not the same. And I'm not in, in doing this series. I'm not saying that Buddhism and Christianity are the same. They're very different. They grew up in different cultures. They use the language and symbol of the culture in which they grew. And um, so they're very different in that regard. But there are some similarities between them. And one of the reasons that Holly and I have decided to do these teachings about Buddha and Jesus is that we want to lift up this body of teachings about compassion and about justice in such a way that both the individual and collective response of each and all of us is that this is something we cannot ignore. It's just too important, especially now about what's going on. Mm -hmm. I'm done now. I'm Certainly. going home. Yeah. Okay. See ya. Um, do you want me to hold that? The, if you want it, you can. Uh, you know, certainly our, our silence or our ignoring it is complicity in this moment. Um, ignoring injustice, ignoring compassion, saying it doesn't affect us is a kind of complicity. And I think these two teachers give us a way to be active participants in compassion and active participants in what became known as interbeing. I'm going to start by reading the epitaph to uh, Young Pueblo's book of poetry, which is called Inward. He writes, two of the great lessons humanity will learn in the 21st century will be, to harm another is to harm oneself. When you heal yourself, you heal the world. And interbeing is essentially a concept like this, that we are bound together that our collective psyche is impacted by every small or large groan, an act of harm, and by every small or large act of joy or laughter or love. I reread this passage by James Baldwin this week, which is also in his way um, a writing about interbeing. Whether I like it or not, whether you like it or not, we are bound together forever. We are part of each other. What is happening to every Negro in the country at any time is also happening to you. It was common in his era to, to refer to African Americans or black Americans as Negroes, and that's the wording that, I, that he uses. So this is a way of reality, but it's not always the, the way we choose to operate consciously as a society. Between 1964 and 1966, the Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh, who is still alive and in a comatose state right now, introduced interbeing as a possibility to the West when he started Plum Village, which is um, a place of uh, meditation and healing and gathering in France. His whole life, actually, he, he, his monastic life was dedicated to bringing mindfulness to the West, to the, the Americas, and to Europe. In the US, he was moved by the work of Martin Luther King, who, with whom he had a friendship. And from the concept of inner being emerged this concept of engaged Buddhism, which set forth a practice in the world rather than a monastic retreat from the world. 
Interbeing is not an English word. It's the best translation we have, or he has, of a Vietnamese word or a Vietnamese phrase. And the Vietnamese phrase is tiep hien. Tiep means being in touch with or continuing. Hien means realizing, making it here and now. And Thich Nhat Hanh asks the question of us, what is it that we are to be in touch with? And his answer is reality, the reality of the world and the reality of the mind. And to be in touch with the mind means to be aware of the process of our inner life, of our feelings, our perceptions, and mental formations, so our judgments, our fears, our prejudices. We need to become as aware of those as we do of the positives, our joys, our feelings of love. And to rediscover our true mind, which is a wellspring of understanding and compassion, what Jung might refer to as the true self, is that, that, that self that can hold the opposites and act from the light, right? So to be in touch with the reality of the world is to be in touch with the animal, vegetable, and mineral realms. It is to get out of just our human way of seeing or being and experience awe and wonder of the life that is around us, but also in awe and in wonder and curious about suffering. The inner and outer worlds are not separate in interbeing, but held together as they are in kind of a vertical, which would be called the spiritual plane, and a horizontal or social dimension of life. The same vertical and horizontal dimension is found in the image of the cross. The Greeks called it kairos and chronos time. Pierre-Terre de Chardin might have called it our cosmic sense, which makes us aware of the stars, the forests, the oceans, and our human place in all of it. So inner being is not a novel concept created by Thich Nhat Hanh. It is actually the way of reality, which is why the Eightfold Path is called the way. Jesus' teachings are called the way. It's the way of reality, interbeing. And he sought to bring it into the forefront of our consciousness. So as we live into the idea of being in touch with, we come along to the concept of continuation. And in this way, we're like endless strings tied together, kind of ushering forth a consistent consciousness and trying to evolve that consciousness over the course of history, over the course of evolution. And part of it is realizing our unique and embedded part in the natural world, our unique and embedded part in the social world. And the call is to bring, to kind of touch the edges of where we connect, of where we interconnect. We can't just think about compassion and understanding and agree that it is the way to be in the world. We have to feel it and practice it, and that's what engaged Buddhism really called into being. We must understand that the way of things doesn't need our approval. It just needs our participation. When we can experience this in ourselves, compassion, we're able then to extend it to others. I'm remembering the passage that by the Hindu Catholic nun, Sarah Grant. Um, I could not find a picture of her anywhere. And she wrote, it wasn't the way because Jesus walked it. Jesus walked it because it was the way. So he's walking into this concept of interbeing. He's walking the concept of interbeing too. And Buddhism asserts that we each have that way nestled within. 
The Buddha was not an idol or a god, just like Jesus wasn't an idol or a god. They both were, in the eyes of Buddhism, bodhisattvas or enlightened beings. And I would say Jesus' teachings echo this. We all have a bodhisattva within. We all have this capacity for enlightenment or walking in the world with compassion. And it's that deep well in us, the truth that's waiting to be discovered. Thich Nhat Hanh writes, there is no way to peace. Peace is the way. There is no way to enlightenment. Enlightenment is the way. There is no way to liberation. Liberation is the way. Consider for a second the mystical parable about the mustard seed. The whole universe is held in this tiny mustard seed. It contains the sun, the earth, the air, and the water. And eventually it becomes a fully formed plant. But it can't become so without the interaction of all the elements. And this is true for all of us. We cannot become who we are without the interaction of everything around us. Thich Nhat Hanh wrote, we can see that for one thing to exist, everything else also needs to exist. This is because that is. Sometimes, and I think right now is one of those times, it's easy to get jaded by this kind of thinking, this kind of interbeing. We're all interconnected because it seems overly optimistic or hopeful. The other day, this appalling video of George Floyd killed by a white policeman kneeling on his neck was released. And there's no evidence that the policeman senses that interconnectedness, that George Floyd was part of him. But you can bet that those two actually are interconnected for the rest of history. So interconnection happens no matter what. And I think we have a choice about whether our interconnection happens in the light or in the dark. And then also the other day, a, a black man in New York City named Christian Cooper was birding. And he asked a white woman who had her dog off leash in an area where dogs are not supposed to be off leash to leash her dog. And she, in her fear and anxiety, pulled out her cell phone and said hysterically, you can watch the video, I am calling the police to report I am being attacked by an African-American man. When you see the video, you'll, you'll hear this hysteria in her voice. And she weaponizes her words as a threat to this man's well-being. Knowing, I think, that he could be terrorized by them. You don't say cavalierly, I'm going to call the police on you. For a black man, that's a threat to his life. So, you know, the question is, where's the evidence of interbeing there? So even in these moments of struggle, of violence and oppression, we are still bound up together. We are married, as James Baldwin says. I think what we have to wake up to is whether we, again, can connect overtly, consciously, walking in the path, walking in the way, or whether we continue to connect covertly, meaning unconsciously and in the dark. We already are, Thich Nhat Hanh says, inter R. <laughs> it's, you know, he, it's a verb, we inter R. <laughs> But we have a choice about the quality of our marriage. I think if we look at the collective relationship between whites and blacks in this country, 
Most of us would say it's a marriage we wouldn't want to be in. I am in a black-white marriage, and it is the best thing I have going. It is... Also scary. Uh, my marriage is not scary. The social context. The social context in which we find ourselves produces fear about my son's well-being and about Josh's well-being. Mm -hmm. Of course it does. We are interconnected in that fear as long as there is oppression, as long as there is an oppressor, there is an oppressed, and there's a connection in that relationship. Again, we have to look at the relationship to decide how do we want to restore or heal this marriage, mm -hmm. right? We go to marriage counseling to work out issues. We're working on a vaccine for COVID-19. Where is the counseling for this collective relationship? Where is the vaccine for racism? So I don't know what kind of responses you have to the material I presented, mm -hmm. but I've got three okay. to you yeah. that I would make. First of all, a confession. Mm -hmm. I know that these notes that we write, which we shared with each other before today, will go out on the internet uh, on Tuesday. Mm -hmm. So I very diligently went through and corrected all the interbeing words and uh, hyphenated them. Oh, you did? <laughs> oh, my copy. And then I, I went back and I read what you wrote and I realized it's, if you, hyphen, if you hyphenate it, you destroy the word. Right. It's one yeah. word. Well, autocorrect kept wanting to make it two words for me and I kept correcting it back to one word. One word. When Thich Nhat Hanh writes it, it's one word. There is no hyphen. There is no break between enter and being. So the, there's no break between our outer world and our inner I, world. And I will, I will go back and correct that. <laughs> So the, the autocorrect <laughs> won't like that either. Yeah. I, I, uh, I was thinking while listening to you, you know, I've known of Thich Nhat Hanh since the 70s. And uh, he used to come to the United States yeah. and make these, as you said, he'd make these tours and raise money. Um, he was part of that Buddhist community that was uh, uh, kicked out of Vietnam because they wouldn't take sides right. in the conflict between North and South Vietnam. And you can buy CDs of his. You can go on Krista Tippett and hear him mm -hmm. interviewed. Mm. And um, oh, that's, yes, I've listened to that interview. Yeah, yeah, his English is difficult to understand, but um, he talks about in the in, in the one interview that I'm thinking about. He talks about anger, mm -hmm. and he has a book on anger mm -hmm. that may be instructive now because yeah. there are so many frightened, angry people in our culture. And that anger and fear is not taking, for many people, a very constructive path. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about anger right now. And I think anger is a symptom of grief, especially as the way it's playing out right now in protests and riots. It's a symptom of deep grief. And when you don't know, you don't have an outlet for that grief that is heard, that is able to be transformed, anger erupts into violence. And violence is a symptom of unmet needs. And the white police officer kneeling on George Floyd's neck, violence is a symptom of power. And power that he's afraid of losing. Right? Mm -hmm. So we have to look at violence. We have to look at what's happening. Not That is a symptom of something else that's broken. That's not what we need to be focusing on. We need to look at the root the grief, 
and hold the grief and be angry. Have some, we talked about this on the podcast, some holy anger. So, right? um, and that, that makes me think that, you know, in regard to COVID-19, before the George Floyd incident happened, we were experiencing culturally that grief, mm -hmm. that anger, that fear, because we have clearly been pushed into a path of descent, mm -hmm. descent. Decent. And and, yeah. and that's what spiritual teachers teach. Yeah. The value of that, of going into that darkness, into that yeah. fear, into that I've I've experienced um, my own grief and the grief of other people related to the fact that ordinary life in St. Paul can't meet in the way that it once did and we don't have any control. And there's just so many things that get stirred up about that. The other response, uh, two, two other things in, in listening to you. I saw a video of Thich Nhat Hanh do the mustard seed story, but he did it with a piece of paper. Mm. He held a piece of paper mm -hmm. like this in his hand. Like mm -hmm. this. Have you seen this? I think I know where you're going, but it's a beautiful story. So and, and he said, you know, if you look deeply into this piece of paper, you can see the tree from which the paper was made. And if you keep looking, you can see the woodman who cut down the tree. And he just goes on back. Yeah. You can see what the woodman ate for breakfast and all of that. It's all contained in this mm -hmm. one thing. The other powerful teaching of Titnachan's uh, is um, treat everybody like your mother. <laughs> everybody. Yeah. Because Thich Nhat Hanh says, Buddhism says, everybody is your mother. Right. And there is this famous scene in the Gospels where Jesus' family think he's just nuts, and they go to try to get him and bring him home, talk some sense into him, and they send somebody into the house and say, your mother and brother uh, are outside. They want you. And Jesus looks around at the crowd and says, this is my mother. Mm -hmm. These this are my, my brothers. Brother. These yeah. are my sisters. So the failure to see that, the failure for a white cop to see that in a black man, of a white woman's failure to see that in a, in a black man birding, is a failure to see the self in, in the other, a failure to see both the self and the other, right. as mother and brother. Right. Right. I, and I've said in here recently, and I and, uh, probably say it frequently now that we can't shake hands mm -hmm. we greet each other by saying i see the sacred in you and i want to speak to that part that's what buddha did that's what jesus that's did what namaste means that's what namaste means mm -hmm. and i promise you that if you do that the person to whom you say that will speak back to you from that same center they may think you're nuts but yeah. some may people be may disorienting. think you're nuts, <laughs> Right. Unless we start doing something like that, mm -hmm. I see your face, and you look like God to me. That's from the Old Testament. I see your face, and you look like my mother. That makes things very different. Yeah. Very different. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think right now I'm, I'm trying to hold on to some hope that we can find our footsteps on the way. The, meaning the capital T, capital W way. And I'm, you know, I'm trying to be hopeful for my beautiful sons, I'm trying to be hopeful for my beautiful husband, 
and for all the black men, women, children who I love and hold on to something that will allow people to feel safe just walking out their door and living life and doing what they do, going on a jog, going birding, walking out of a restaurant. You know, these are, these are safeties that many of us in the white community take for granted. So I think what engaged Buddhism says is it says, well, it's gonna take more than hope. It's gonna take participation and in a little bit, and you'll talk about this in a little bit, shaking us out of our innocence, that we, meaning white folks, are not part of both the problem and the solution. I don't remember where I got this. I think it's from Pima Chodron. But if you decide to put your foot on this path and walk it, it's going to cause you trouble. Because it's going to shake up the worldview that you had about the way things are or ought to be. But clearly the way things are isn't working. Mm -hmm. And it isn't working for a significant number of people. Yeah. And if it doesn't work for everybody, it's not going to, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. Mm -hmm. It's not going to work. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's not my... You know, my first spiritual teacher said, my job is to knock you off the path, <laughs> and your job is to get back on. But he said that from a very loving uh, place and in a very, very safe context. Mm -hmm. We're being knocked off the path today, and it doesn't feel good. Right. And um, there's a lot that we don't have control over mm -hmm. in any sense of the word. Right. So. Yeah. I think I have found over the years that the most helpful spiritual teachings that nudge me in the direction of this transformation that we are experiencing actually make me feel more insecure. Mm. And I did get this phrase from Alan Watts and from Pima Chodron and from Thomas Merton, all of them. I'll quote Merton in a minute. Um, they talk about the wisdom of insecurity. Mm. That it's, it, Buddha said you cause yourself suffering if you try to hold on to something. It's gonna, one thing, it's going to drag you out of the present moment. Mm -hmm. And in this present moment is the only place where you can be secure. Right. You have to face up to what is and um, be willing to take a stand mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. This that you received kind of speaks to that. The, 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 the wisdom in, of insecurity, may I read it? Yeah, I would like for you to read it. Okay, it's from Greta Bach, and she we gave have us her permission. permission to share it with her name. And it sounds like she just wrote out some thoughts. Kneeling has always meant to be kneeling in prayer, kneeling down to a child, kneeling to dig and plant, kneeling in gratitude, kneeling to tie my shoes. Now I must come to grips with seeing a man kneeling to kill, using another man as his prayer kneeler and kneeling until he dies. Colin Kaepernick knelt to protest or signify that black lives matter, and he was vilified by even the sport teams that made so much money from his great football talents. How ironic that a police officer's main talent 
was kneeling calmly for nine minutes while his knee pad died. There's so much to grieve these days, and I just try to breathe, for honestly, I don't know what to do today. I think that is the wisdom of insecurity, is sitting with not knowing what to do and being okay with that. Well, we have made Jesus and Buddha into problem solvers. Neither one of them was. Jesus never said, here's the answer to your solution. He didn't do that. Mm -hmm. uh, I've talked about that a lot in here, how Jesus asked way, way more questions than he answered. What Jesus and Buddha did, or what well, Jesus did, and Buddha in his own way did the same thing, was say, here, I'm going to tell you a story. Mm -hmm. Work with it. Live into it. And see what you come up with. Now, the stories that we're being told are on the front page of the paper. Yeah. We have to listen to them. There is nothing on the front page of the New York Times today. Nothing. A, a blank page. And at the bottom, it's sort of like the page is falling off. And it says, America is broken. The world is broken. Mm -hmm. and maybe it says the world. I can't remember. But either way. You know, when I started this class 20 years ago and called it Ordinary Life, um, what I intended to convey is that life is to be found in the midst of the ordinary. Mm -hmm. But it ain't ordinary life that we find in the midst <laughs> of the ordinary. It's supposed to lead to that transformation that both Jesus and Buddha talked about. Um, and it, 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 you know, the, the title of Richard Orr's most popular book is that everything belongs. And we have to practice this inclusivity, this compassion, this forgiveness that provides a container to hold it all. I, I, I remember Thich Nhat Hanh being in the United States after 9-11 occurred and somebody asked him, what would you do? What would you say to these people who did this? And uh, the question is apropos right now. What would you say? And Thich Nhat Hanh said, I would get everybody who's connected to this in a room. Everybody. And we would sit in silence for a long time. And then I would ask, why are you so angry with us and I would listen and that's what we have to do to figure out a way to listen you know both Jesus and Buddha put stock in the ridiculous uh, in, in the absurdity I think quantum physics asks us to do the same yeah. thing there might be other universes out there, there. might be other <laughs> universes and what do they call um, teddy bear planets, honey, what? Goldilocks planets. Goldilocks planets. <laughs> You're thinking of the three bears. Yeah. Um, so Jesus and Buddha want us to take faith and reason to the limit, go past that into new territory, uh, cross boundaries of all kinds. I'm going to get to preach here in a couple of weeks, and the text 
all three, uh, all four of the texts for the day are about crossing boundaries, crossing boundaries, crossing boundaries. Jesus is always getting in a boat and going to the other side. And um, I think that's very amazing. Hmm. You know, I have uh, for years since I discovered it, put this icon up at the beginning of every Ordinary Life presentation. Uh, this icon comes from the year 530. It was found in pristine condition in a monastery in Egypt where the weather conditions allowed it to be preserved. And uh, the scholars say this is the first depiction that we have of Jesus. Obviously, this icon is intended to represent a real person. And what we know about icons is that the person who wrote the icon, that's what they call it when they paint these things, they write the icon, was charged with duplicating the icon from which he was copying uh, very meticulously. So if we trust that information, we can say that w this icon is a representation of many icons that went before it, but all look the same thing. And I use it because it is a depiction of non-duality. Um, if you take a really close look at this icon, you will notice that the two eyes of Jesus are markedly different. His right eye is distinctly human with a kind of uh, delicateness and lucidity about it. His right uh, eyebrow, the one on our right, is raised. Um, his left eye is rough, it's mysterious, it's piercing. And, and um, the painting is clearly of one person but with two aspects, making the one out of two. I want to show you another icon. And I want to thank Laura Jones for sending the, me this particular, just captivating photograph. This picture was taken by uh, a man whose name is Marco Manicelli, and he worked for the Detroit News. And this is a photograph taken from the inner city Detroit Montessori School. And I want to read what the photographer himself writes. I had been with the children for two days and shot hundreds of photos. Some were very good, but I knew I hadn't gotten a great shot. This was in an afternoon session. We were all seated on the floor, sitting in a circle, listening to a story. I bowed my head and said a little prayer asking God to let me see something great. When I raised my head, the little girl leaned over to lay her head on the little boy's lap. He very nonchalantly lifted his arm to receive her. The photograph was published full size the next day in the newspaper. I call it the Age of Innocence. You know, we look at a photograph like this and we think, well, that's the way, right? This is the way of interbeing in a literal sense and in uh, a physical sense and in a spiritual sense. Um, Josh and I were riding bikes with the boys the other day and uh, we live in a neighborhood that has slowly become less diverse. It's become 
wealthier, a little bit wider. And um, we saw that day four families outside with their kids, uh, black, white, interracial families, just kind of around our neighborhood. And I said, does that make your heart sing when we see other families that look like ours? And Josh said, so wisely, that's the way it should be. We operate against the way it should be. And children know this way, and then they unlearn it. And I think as grown-ups, as participants in compassion and change, we have to kind of come out of our own innocence. We can't stay in innocence that there is no problem here as grown-ups, right? We have to come out of our innocence and say there is a problem here, and we need to address it. We need not to destroy this that children come with, that they are packaged with. Right? And we need to get back to that. I don't know that we ever, that we have something to get back to. We may need to get a hold of our childlike innocence, but this was never, this was not reality in the United States of America, and it still isn't in the way that grown-ups operate, mm -hmm. right? So it's, there's not anything to get back to, but the children show us the way, right? There is something to pull forth. You remember the musical South Pacific? Did you ever see that? Yeah, it's the been a powerful song in that musical. Uh, you have to be taught to be afraid mm -hmm. of people mm -hmm. whose skin is another shade, mm -hmm. of people whose eyes are oddly made. Yeah. You have to be carefully taught. And I think that teaching comes with the tribe that we're part of, and we draw lines in the sand, saying this is our superiority. Christianity has been great at that. Yeah. You know, we're better than any other religion, and you just better get on board. We'll, we'll come over to your country and convert you and <laughs> make you believe what we believe. And um, that superiority. I, I, I would hope that one of the things that comes out of what we're trying to do using Jesus and Buddha as a guide to help us through this pandemic, can, because of religious education, the importance of religious education, help us to see that um, though we might have a religious tradition that is our home, it cannot be one that excludes others as being inferior. Right. We have to have that inclusive. So, um, you know, we um, mentioned this book mm -hmm. by Daramut or Muraku. I think that's pretty close to the pronunciation okay, kinda, we I got. Know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> we'll I've been, ask. I've been rehearsing that. Yeah. Daramut or Muraku in this book, uh, when the when the disciple appears, which is all about being grown up yeah about growing up and not being dependent on somebody else telling me what to do or who's right or wrong using people as guides certainly but um he says that very likely jesus never used the phrase kingdom of god in his teachings now in the greek new testament you do have that phrase kingdom of god but jesus didn't speak greek and the Aramaic equivalent of kingdom of God is very difficult to construct. So Amurku says that very likely the phrase that Jesus used, which is difficult, is difficult to put into English as interbeing, mm -hmm. as the word interbeing, 
is the phrase empowering community. Mm -hmm. That people were invited to come into this circle yeah. of empowerment. And there was no distinction except the poor and the disadvantaged had first shot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Jesus makes that clear over and over and over again. And so does Buddha in his teaching. And what, um, what Amurku is talking about and what I see in developmental psychology from people like James Hollis in his book, Living the Examined Life, is what we're called to do is to bring enlarged being into the world. Mm -hmm. And that that is one of the marks of a really true living um, viable religion that we grow up and that we bring these grown-up, mature, enlarged qualities into the world. Mm -hmm. So in deciding how we're going to deal with things in the days ahead, a question that we can ask of ourselves and of each other about what we're about to say or what we're about to do mm -hmm is does this bring enlarged being into the world? The Buddhist psychologist and uh, practitioner who teaches the, the Eightfold Path, Tara Brach, says, may this too serve awakening. Sort of her prayer is, may this too serve awakening. I'm not familiar, I know who she is, but I'm not that familiar, you're a big fan of her. I like her, yeah. yeah. How do you access her? Uh, podcasts. Okay. Yeah, so it's just. And did before we go, you want to say something about a podcast? Ah, yes. <laughs> uh, we've started a podcast, and it's called In Between. And the reason, well, you have to listen to the podcast to find out why it's called In Between. Should we give it away? But we are working on ways that we can connect with you all, that we can just sort of keep a thread, the continuing thread of community in the time when we're not together physically. So in the podcast, we hope to release it every Wednesday or Thursday, conversations between Bill and I, and um, every couple of weeks we'll invite other people to come have conversations with us. So be careful, you might get a phone call. <laughs> um, and please join us. It can be found on our website where you listen to the weekly lectures. It can also be found on iTunes where you download podcasts under Ordinary Life. It's on the same stream as Ordinary Life Sunday lectures. So uh, do I have time to tell a Thich Nhat Hanh story? I think as so. As we go? Yeah. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh spoke at this conference called The Practice of Mindfulness in Psychotherapy. I've told this story before, but it's just one of my favorites. And this woman, who I am sure was from California because of the way she dressed and talked and whatever, asked Iknahan a question that he had a very difficult time understanding. And it was, how do you suggest that we deal with our patients as with, over the issue of anger? And he had a difficult time understanding that because as we proceed, you'll see how Buddhism has a difficult problem with anger. Mm -hmm. so it considers it the chief poison mm -hmm. uh, that corrodes the self. And uh, th I think we 
we'll modify some of that as we go along because anger has a healthy place. It does. Uh, but he asked her, he said, um, how, how do you deal with anger in your patients right now? And she said, well, we get them to express it. <laughs> and he, he said, how do you do that? She said, well, we put a big pillow in front of them, and we give them a bat called a bataka, and we have them hit the pillow over and over and over and over until they get the anger out of them. And um, she said, what do you think of that? <laughs> and Titanaha got right down in her face and put his finger right in her face and said, I think you better talk to Pillow. Yeah. <laughs> see what Pillow think about that. See what that. Pillow thinks. Yeah. So uh, anger can be a healthy emotion, which we will talk about, but it has some destructive things as well. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good week. Have a good week. No matter where you go, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo. So watch your step, and we'll see you here next Sunday.